welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Thank you. We are going to be uh, talking about things. Again, this is PG-13 or older. And uh, so parents, if you have little ones in here, just use your discretion because we want to be as graphic as the scriptures are graphic. And so I think it's important that we talk about certain things. Today is part two of that talk. So if last week we looked at the variations of six different pictures of uh, divine sex, you could say. That number one, sex is romantic. Number two, sex is life-giving Sex is sensual, sex is holy, um, sex is uh, responsive, and the last thing we talked about is sex is oneness. So last week, if we talked about sex being good and the way God designed it, this week we're going to look at how it goes south and ways that it, we mess this whole thing up. For the most part, we're going to talk about how most of us have, have experienced sexuality. And so I know that this is a tender topic. And that for all of us, if we can just be open and allow ourselves to be honest with ourselves and with God, I think that this will be very helpful for us. So the question I want to answer today is this. Why would God give us passionate sexual desires and say that it's good and say to us that this is what it means to be human and yet tell us we have to practice restraint and say that it's only designed for a covenantal marriage relationship between a man and a woman for a lifetime. Why is that the case? So I want to go and look through the New Testament. We're going to jump out of Song of Songs for a bit. So if you have a Bible, let's go to Song of Songs, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, I recommend having one for this talk. We're going to be bouncing all over the Old and New Testament, um, giving you a survey, I suppose, of a, a New Testament sexual ethic. And so to answer this question, I just want to use the text and the authority that it has for us today. So um, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1. We picked up where we left off last week. And so the curtains closed after chapter 4 where she says, Awake north wind and come south wind. Blow in my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. That is very specific language to talk about the type of sex they're going to have. And then the curtains closed. And I said, use your imagination. Some of you needed me to explain it. And I got those emails. So thank you. I Hopefully I was helpful. I didn't get those emails actually. So chapter 5 verse 1. So it, it, then the curtains open up. It's after their honeymoon night. And it says this. This is uh, the beloved. I'm sorry. Solomon speaking. He says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. So he says nine times my. And all of a sudden the language changes and he's speaking as though they are one. And so we have this picture that sexuality is the primary way we experience oneness. And this is something that's mysterious. It's something that's beyond physical parts touching each other. It, sex is something deeper and more powerful than that. And so um, he says all this, and then uh, some commentators say that this is the only line that God has in this, this, whole, this whole book. And they, it says friends, so it could be daughters of Jerusalem, but most scholars actually think that this is God speaking into the relationship. And he says this, eat friends and drink. Drink your fill of love. And it's as if Solomon is basking and, and celebrating and exalting this God-honoring sex. 
of two virgins coming together for the first time. And God just blesses it. So that's the ideal. Go to Genesis chapter 2. I want to go back to a um, a text that we looked at yesterday just to make the point. I said we were going to spend a couple more minutes here last week. Um, But I wanted to make the point of where we're going. Because Genesis chapter 2 becomes the... um, the primary place of authority for all things dealing with sex. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, other authors will use Genesis chapter 2 as the primary authoritative uh, device or or statement on what sexuality is. And so we're going to look at that, but I wanted to run this by you again. It says in verse 24, so Adam wakes up, he sees this new creature, he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Um, verse 24, just a reminder, when, if you weren't here last week, when he says bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, he's saying, um, where I am weak, she is strong, and where she is weak, I am strong. Bone represents strength and flesh represents weakness, and, and he calls her woman. He doesn't name her. That comes after the fall which comes with the curse of man ruling over women, which comes after the fall, when sin is introduced into the story. But in the beginning, he doesn't name her. He says she's Isha, the Hebrew word, for she was taken out of Ish, man. And so it's significant, guys. This is a significant theology. In fact, uh, just on a biblical hermeneutic, for those of you that are interested in studying scripture, this is completely free for you. Um, I get obsessed with this stuff. But uh, there's a principle of first mention or the law of first mention. When you want to interpret scripture, you want to know the meaning of a word, you go to its first mention in the scripture. So Genesis for us has a lot of firsts. If you want to know what love is like, you read the first time love is used is when it talks about Abraham giving his one and only son whom he loved. And that becomes the antithesis, I'm sorry, that becomes the uh, primary definer for what love looks like all throughout the rest of the Bible, the love between a father for his son. So you look throughout the scriptures on what were, what, what are the first time, what's the word used in, when it's the first time used, and how, how does that, how do you interpret there, and how do you apply it for the rest of scripture. So let's read this together. It says, verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife. The word united is bonded or glued. I like the word glued. Glued to his wife. It's this powerful word of union, of joining together. And it's referring to the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. And it says, and they become, they became, or excuse me, they become one Flesh. Now say this with me again. The word for one is echad. One, two, three, echad. Good. Some of you are getting it down. That's great. This is a powerful word. And the word is, is used to describe this mysterious nature of what happens when a man marries a woman and they have sexual intercourse. That there's this mysterious oneness or a one. And the word one is a oneness made up of several different parts and members. And it's mysterious in the Hebrew language. In fact, it is, I, sh- I shared this last week, but it's used throughout the scriptures to talk about what God is like. That very word, of all the words the author of Genesis could have used to describe the mysterious oneness of, of marriage, he uses a word that will be used all throughout the Old Testament to describe what kind of God we have. 
So in Deuteronomy 6.4, if you want to go there, you can, but we've, we did a whole series on this verse. It's the Shema prayer. Do you remember the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad. The Lord is one. Now, if you're Christian, we believe that our God is one. One, but three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It kind of defines his nature, that he's three yet one and one yet three. Do you, know that, do you know what I'm talking about? So we can see that as we apply one to God that there's a sense of unity. There's a sense of unity among, uh, in the midst of diversity and there's a, a sense of oneness um, in the midst of many members and it, it reveals this mystery. But when you apply it to marriage, it's far more important because all of a sudden when, we're, when we use this word to describe marriage, we recognize that the reason God Im, uh, uh, or the reason the author uses this word is to say that when two people become one, they become the reflection of what God is like, a oneness made up of several dis- different parts and members. That when you engage in sexual activity as a married couple, you put God on display in your oneness. Now, this is a mysterious nature. In fact, Paul will even say, I don't even know how to explain it. He'll say in Ephesians 5, he'll just call it a mystery. And just kind of leave it ambiguous. And I'm going to leave it ambiguous as well. But the point I'm making here is something else happens when two people engage in sexual activity. And so the design is, uh, and let's go to the next slide. This will help me. So the point I want to make today is sex is powerful. That sex is powerful. Go to the next slide. This will help me. The only thing strong enough to handle the power of sexuality is a covenant made between one man and one woman for a lifetime, that that is the only environment that can sustain the power of sexuality. The only thing strong enough to handle the power of sexuality is a covenant between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Are you with me? Go to the next slide for me. We've got a bunch of slides. Hopefully this helps. So, sex like cars or sex like electricity So, how many of us know that there are rules and regulations for those of us that can drive cars? We have to have a license. We have to do smog checks. There are certain cars we can drive on the roads, and there are certain cars that we can't drive on the roads. Uh, We don't allow drunk drivers because what happens when drunk people get into cars is that the thing that is used to get them somewhere, a gift, a powerful car that moves us from point A to point B over long distances, becomes a tool of destruction, that anything powerful has rules that governs its behavior. Sex is powerful. Sex is like a car or sex is like electricity. None of you are here saying, um, oh man, I'm so bummed I don't get to stick my knife into a light socket. You are limiting my freedom. No, there are rules that govern electricity. That electricity is a very good thing. It's a powerful thing. But there are rules that govern its behavior and its use. That we should, um, we should abide by these, these kind of general understandings of how this stuff kind of works. And I mean, if you think about it too, at least our government thinks that marriage is a significant thing that you have to have a license to, to get married. Because the point is, the, there are rules that govern the behavior of anything powerful. And for us this morning, I would like to make the case that sex is powerful and that there are rules that should govern its um, behavior in our lives. And so the question, again, I just want to reiterate this, is um, why 
has God set up these rules. The scriptures come alongside our lives and say that there are, there are places, there are environments for us to experience sex, and there are environments where we shouldn't experience sex. And if you're, if you're here and you don't believe that God is good, if you believe that God is a killjoy, that God is scarce and he's holding out on you, then, then you will have a sexuality that says, actually, I know best. And you, you, what we'll see uh, later on in this talk about in Romans is that you will allow your pleasure to drive your behavior and you will become sl- a slave to your desires. And so we are given an environment and a set of rules, not for, um, not for uh, a, the sense of God wanting, to keep a, God wanting to be a killjoy and keep us from having pleasure, but for our protection. So the scriptures come alongside, and God not only wants to provide the greatest sex on earth for us who are married, but God wants to come around and protect us from consequences. And culture will say that there are earthly consequences. Would you agree? I shared last week, you know, in school, they're saying, hey, don't have sex because you'll get a what? STD. Or you don't have sex because you're going to get pregnant as a consequence, or you will, uh, you'll, you'll get an abortion, so there are, there are consequences. Would you agree with me of these things? That This is a dangerous thing. We need to watch out for these consequences. And then, but God also wants to come and say sex is powerful, so he wants to protect us from the spiritual consequences. That's what I want to argue today. Are you with me? And so um, a picture. So we said that sex is designed for a covenantal relationship. Well, I want to give you a picture of what sex looks like outside of marriage. So here's a picture of sex outside of marriage. It's from a Christmas story. Here's another one. Just keep it up for a second. So we see (laughs) this is a picture of what sex looks like outside of marriage. The word for Joining God or is being bound to God or it's joining uh, a wife or being united to his wife is to be uh, bonded to another or like I said, super glued to another. And the idea is that your souls are, are, are joined together in a mysterious way. And when you, when you practice sex outside of marriage, you are joining with someone and you are being ripped apart. And a piece of you, like a piece of their tongue, gets left on the frozen pole or gets left on with the other person. So in other words, when you practice sex outside of marriage, you are joining with someone and you are ripping apart. You are joining with someone and you are ripping apart. You are joining with someone and you are ripping apart. And when you are ripping apart, you are losing part of yourself every single time. And the consequences lead to you feeling emptier and you become more hollow and numb to the very thing that God has designed to unite and create further intimacy for you. So this is the picture we have of of a piece of yourself being ripped apart. And so that's the two pictures I wanna work with. Now I'm just gonna go through the text and show you what Jesus and other authors do. So go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, uh, verse 4. So Jesus is asked about divorce in the gospel of Matthew. 
And um, he, he responds. I want to just point, I'm going to make these points quickly. So if you have a Bible, go there quickly with me. Matthew chapter 19. So he's asked about divorce, and his response should look familiar. He says, uh, Is it lawful for, the Pharisee asks, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife or any, for any reason ev- uh, and every reason? Excuse me. Verse 4 Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer one, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, God has joined together. Therefore, what God has joined together, excuse me, let no one separate. So Jesus' argument is what? Genesis chapter 2. The argument for divorce is that there's something that happens when two people come together and say, I do, in front of God and man, and when they, they have sex together, they are formed together as one. Let, uh, let no man separate what God joined together. Are you with me? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So here Paul is talking to a church in Corinth. Um, it was a decadent church. It was a wealthy community. It was absolutely a beautiful city. Um, and one of the things that they were no, known for is being immoral on all accounts. Um, and what was common practice in the first century in pagan religions was something called temple prostitution. And so the way you connected with the deities, whether it was Kibbeleh in Sardis or it was Artemis in Ephesus or, or any other parts like in Corinth, they worship all these different deities. The way you would join these deities in worship is by sleeping with prostitutes. This is their mindset, okay? Their mindset is sex is super normal and natural. And we're going to see how Paul argues against this because they have this worldview, a paradigm of what, that sex is as natural as eating. And they confuse a a, a physical um, desire with physical needs. Are you with me? So Paul is arguing because they have these hashtags or these slogans like hashtag YOLO, like he's going to argue against that, where we say you only live once, and we're like, yeah, but that's for eternity, for those of us that are Christians. You only live forever, you know what I'm saying? So party up or whatever. Um, but here, here you have their, their, their slogans or hashtags. Verse 12, I have the right to do anything, you say, but, nothing is, but, but not everything is beneficial, Paul says. So the slogan is, I have the right to do anything. And they're saying in Christ, and they're probably quoting Paul. This is how twisted it is. They're probably quoting Paul's teaching on freedom in Christ. And, and, but then he says, look, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything. He says it again, but I will not be mastered by anything. And then he, he quotes them again. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both. So they're arguing that um, physical needs are physical needs, that food is designed for so- stomach. And their argument is sex is just like one of those physical needs. It's as natural as eating. Remember, you have this pagan practice that they were drenched in, this culture of sexuality, saying sex is okay, it's natural, it's how you connect with God, and these people become Christian. And what do they do? They bring their practices into the church. And it's as natural as eating to them. And Paul says this, and their argument is uh, is that uh, they're all gonna be destroyed. Now, this is important theology, they say that, hey, stomach's going to be destroyed and so is food. So we're not going to have to eat in the age to come is what they're saying. Their argument is this. And, and then Paul argues this. He says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord. So sex is good, but it's not designed for sexual immorality. Food is good because it's designed to sustain you. 
And sex is good because God designed it. But sex is not designed for sexual immorality. Are you, are you following the train of thought? Okay, good. I'm glad I, I was so confused for a bit. Uh, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. So now he talks about the resurrection. Do you not know that you, your bodies are members of Christ himself? So he's arguing from a perspective that our bodies are also members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Does that word sound familiar? Unite. It's a Greek variation of the Hebrew word of what it means when a husband and wife gets united. It says, um, uh, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Sex is beyond just physical parts. Sex is powerful, sex is mysterious, sex is spiritual, and we become one. And so he's saying, should I unite Christ with a prostitute? And he says, for it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So he uses Genesis 2 as an argument. And then he continues on, flee then from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Why? Because you're ripping apart your soul. You're ripping apart your soul. Do you not know that your bodies are, are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You have been bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And the argument is not to honor God just with your, your body as a general statement. It's honor your, God with your body sexually. The implication is sec- honoring God with our body sexually. So Paul makes this huge argument, and it's, it's absolutely relevant for us today. What happens is sex is so powerful, and according to Scripture, um, go to the next slide, that there is no distinction with sex. All of it is sex. So we, they had slogans like, hey, food for the stomach and stomach for food and uh, everything is, uh, we can do whatever we want, basically. And Paul's saying not everything's beneficial. Uh, we have our own slogans. Would you agree? That some of us are here and we're saying, well, we're not married yet, but we're going to get married. So why not practice? <laughs> we laugh, but this is so rooted in our psyche, our reasoning. Uh, uh, it, it may be, well, porn's not hurting anyone. Or you're in a relationship and you're not married and you're like, well, it's, it doesn't, the Bible isn't very clear about sexual immorality. What they're talking about is, is sex sex, you know, like, the, like penetration sex, that. There is no dis- distinction in the scriptures It is perfectly clear. All of it is sex. Even to the point you could argue kissing in the Old and New Testament would be framed for a covenantal marriage relationship. Now, it's different here. We we don't have to argue it, but let's just think of all the ways. And I want to be very specific for a moment. Masturbation, mutual masturbation, oral sex is all sex. And it is only designed for a covenantal marriage relationship. And there's no distinction in the scripture. Are you with me? So if that's the boundaries, if, if God is saying that these are the boundaries for a covenantal relationship, just wait, then the implications are all the other things that we discuss. Outside of a marriage relationship, 
will be harmful to us if we're not careful. Are you with me? Let's keep going through these. I want to just make a couple more points. So it's all sex and it's all for marriage. Here's a couple of points. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 says this. It says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. So the point is not even a hint of sexual immorality. Hebrews chapter 13, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexual immoral. Go to the next slide. So if you want to know what God's will is for your life, Thessalonians makes it clear. It is God's will. How many of you are wondering what's God's will for your life? It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Okay, we'll go back. We're going to come back to uh, Romans chapter 1. And the word for pagan are those who don't know God. So the question is, do you believe God has your best in mind? Do you believe that God has your best in mind? Is your sexuality included in that? How many of us are here and we have been bound together, bonded together with someone else and been ripped apart? And we experience the destruction of sexual activity outside of marriage that we ourselves have craved things and we have been left wanting after we went after those things. So if you are with me and you believe that this is, um, this is a good thing, that waiting till you're married and keeping the, the marriage bed pure, and, and if you are married, that keeping your marriage bed pure is a good thing, I wanna talk about the consequences of what happens when we live outside of that intended purpose. And I, I feel like for many of us, this will be enlightening for us this morning. Because Paul makes a very, um, very powerful argument in Romans chapter 1. So if you would go to Romans chapter 1. We're doing great on time, by the way. <laughs> Which is a rare thing for me. Romans chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 18. So if you... I want to talk about the consequences, recognizing that sex is powerful and it can become a destructive thing in our lives. Here's Paul's um, argument to the church in Rome, starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So when he refers to all people, he's referring to everyone. We're not talking about those inside of Jesus or outside of Jesus. We're talking about all of humanity at this point, Okay. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, God is being revealed in creation. First of all, God's wrath is being poured out, okay? It is a present tense. That means it's continually being poured out on all people, okay? And the reason has to do with what he's gonna argue. But he's also saying that there's no such thing as an atheist. He's saying God's invisible qualities are being revealed. And really, you have to have way more faith than I do in Jesus to be an atheist than to be a Christian. Because to say sunsets or humans or babies or the eyeball or the brain are a, a product of randomness and chance 
um, is really interesting. And if you're here and you're atheist, I don't want to insult you. And I'm not trying to, to, I know we wrestle with this stuff, but at some level, you have to have more faith in science than I have in Jesus. And what Paul's saying is, look, if you walk outside, you can see the thumbprint of a divine creator. No one has an excuse. You with me? For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Circle gave thanks. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God, listen to this, gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, listen to this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. So here's the reasoning that comes from Paul. He says this, and I wanna make this perfectly clear. Our sexual desires don't start, our sexual issues, excuse me, don't start as sexual issues. Paul makes this argument, which is profound. Our, our shameful, I'm sorry, our sexual issues don't begin as sexual issues. Go to the slide. Um, they start with our view of God. This is what Paul's saying. Our sexual issues begin with whether or not we are grateful people. So it starts like this. Go to eight, uh, verse 19. It says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him or gave thanks to him. And now here's the progression that we read in Romans chapter 1. Put up the next slide. Okay. It all starts with ingratitude. I want you to reflect on yourself for a moment. All sin begins here with ingratitude. This is what Paul's arguing in Romans chapter 1. He says that it begins with a state of discontentment. How did Adam and Eve get tempted by the, by the serpent? What did, he, what did he do to tempt them? He drew their attention to the one thing in the entire garden that they couldn't have. He led them to a place of discontentment. And how many of us are walking around looking at other people and talking about what we don't have? How many of us are, have these desires if we're single and saying, well, I can't have sex yet and there's a sense of discontentment with where we are or bitterness or we're married and we don't have sex as much as we want and it breeds this sense of discontentment. So we begin to become unthankful, ungrateful and we don't even recognize God in our lives. And this is what he's saying in Romans chapter one. That all of sin begins with your heart of gratitude. This is why worship is so important. And then it leads to the next place where you go from worshiping the creator to created things. Now, most of us don't struggle with worshiping images of false gods, for the most part. We're not going to false temples and worshiping man-made images of beasts and you know, bronze statues, most of us. But we do begin to worship other things in our lives, like ourselves, like our job, like our dreams, like our families, like our kids, like our careers, like our identity um, being approved by others. We begin to worship all sorts of things. So it starts with discontentment, like if it's sex, well, I gotta have sex. And so we begin to worship that desire inside of us to fulfill that pleasure. 
And it just starts there. It just starts with us feeling it, like wanting to go after these things. Or if, it's, if you worship your image, well, it starts with being unthankful for the body you have. And so you begin to think that you're valued based on how you look. And so that leads to a behavior which leads to idolatry, which is worshiping false gods. So it all begins with us being thankful for who we are and what God's done and all the things we have in our life. Do we drive around saying, God, thank you for this breath? Or do we drive around saying, God, I want that car. I want that other iPad or that whatever it is that you struggle with. And then it leads to a place of idolatry where you begin to seek after these things. And worship is giving time, energy, money, resources, headspace to this thing. And from idolatry comes immorality where you act on behalf of that desire. If it's sex or pleasure, you follow it to a place of of disobedience. You begin to operate outside of what God intended, and this is a sinful life. And immorality is where we begin um, in the Christian world where we compare each other, right? Where we, we begin to avoid or ignore the consequences of sin. Porn doesn't hurt anyone. I'm just gonna look a little bit I'm just gonna go to one website. And what happens over time is we begin to compare our sins to other sins. Well, I'm not looking at porn every day. Or I'm just, I'm just looking at the menu at work, aka your coworkers, even though you're married. I've heard that before. That it's okay to recognize someone that's beautiful as you collect images for later. Do you know what I'm talking about? Are we here? So it moves to immorality, which is constant state of disobedience. And eventually, immorality leads to imprisonment. And this is where God's wrath is poured out. God's judgment is not when porn is found on your computer by a loved one, or when you get caught, or when you get pregnant or a disease. That's not God's judgment. That's God's mercy on your life. That's his kindness putting a roadblock saying this is gonna lead somewhere else. And that somewhere else is his judgment where God hands you over to the desires of your heart. And you become enslaved to the very thing that you think will fill you and it will just leave you hungrier and more empty and more dissatisfied and more disappointed and more disconnected and fractured in life. Go to the next slide. Slavery is this. I don't want to, but I can't help it. We become imprisoned to the things that we can't live without. And Paul says it all begins with gratitude. So this is the spiral downward or the flush, you could say, to imprisonment. Where we become slaves to our desires, where we can't go without it. Slavery is saying I don't want to, but I can't help it. There's a great uh, story within The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Edmund is confronted by the witch, and the witch pretends to be his friend. Um, and, and she offers him whatever he wants, and he gets this thing called Turkish Delight. Do you remember this story? And Turkish Delight, uh, it, 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 the more he eats it, the more he wants it. And he loses his appetite for other things. And if he, if, he didn't, if he wasn't saved or rescued, he would have eaten himself to death. That's what lust 
and imprisonment looks like when we're enslaved to these things. So for some of us, we're, we, we recognize the consequences of the physical action. We recognize the consequences of, of uniting ourselves with someone else in sexual activity. And we recognize that it's, outside. it's only designed for marriage. Um, but I want to make one more further point because Jesus makes it perfectly clear. For those of us that are wrestling with this issue, he makes it perfectly clear. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, and it's not going to go up there, but he says this. He's talking about the legal system that's been set up, and it talks about adultery. And there were all different rules and regulations, ways to break it down so uh, Pharisees can, can literally sign a certificate of divorce and be um, released from their marriage vows. And, and Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, brothers and sisters, this is what Paul's after. It's what Jesus is after. He's not just after your behavior. He's after your heart. That gratitude starts with your heart and your mind being one with God. And lust is this powerful thing. Go to the next slide. Lust, there are two Greek words that make up this word. Epi. It's a, epithumia is the Greek word, and epi means in, and thumos means in the mind. So the phrase is in the mind. And it's referring to um, what happens when someone is uh, going after something. Now, we understand sex as, or lust as a, the cultivation of sexual images with anyone else other than our spouse, but it's far more crippling than that because it doesn't have to be just sexual things. It could be shopping. It could be food. It could be anything. We can lust after that. It's the idea that something comes into our head and takes up space. It's that you're at home, you're doing chores, you're driving to work, you're, you're playing with your kids, and all the while your, your brain is someplace else craving that thing that you can't live without. Lust is being owned by something you can't conceive being content without. That's lust. Freedom isn't being able to say whatever, uh, being able to have whatever you crave. Freedom isn't sticking your fork in a light socket. Freedom is going without whatever you crave and being fine with it. Are you with me? So Jesus makes this beautiful argument. He says, at the center of it, I'm after your hearts. And lust is far greater than just this, these images that we cultivate in our mind. It's, it's anything that takes up space that keeps us discontent because discontentment leads to a life of ingratitude. Are you with me? Do you see how insidious this is? How damaging this is to our relationships and our lives? This is where sex goes south because we don't think that our sexual fantasies are causing any problems, but we don't recognize that they are trapping us. They are trapping us. Ephesians chapter four, verse 17 says this, and I'm gonna end um, with this text. It says, so I tell you this and insist on it uh, in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, that they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Sounds familiar? It's similar to Romans. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Go to the next slide. So there are two words here. Sensitivity is to feel and lacking or going without. So the word that he puts together is lacking all sensitivity. The translation is having lost the ability to feel things like they used to. Having lost the ability to feel things like they're used to. So Paul's saying, I want you to think about an alcoholic for a moment. They're not drinking for the taste of grapes or a brew. 
the quality of the vintage or the craft beer. They're not drinking for that reason. For those of us that have experienced alcoholism, it's far more devastating than that. They're trying to fill a void because they don't feel or taste or sense things like they used to. This is what happens over time, imprisonment. And the, the next part, part is that God, they're handed over to their sensuality. And sensuality is the absence of restraint. The absence of restraint. An insatiable desire for pleasure. And so God hands them over and they go without restraint. And it's like Turkish delight in the line, the witch in the wardrobe. And so we recognize that when our lusts get the best of us, they trap us. And so whether it's food, sex, shopping, or whatever it is that you find that fills you, it will one day betray you and own you. And it will always leave you wanting more. When we pursue a life outside of God's boundaries, it leaves us feeling emptier, lonelier, hungrier, more depressed. We'll end up watching every clip on the website. We'll buy one in every color and we will take another because we become slaves to our desires. Are you with me? Now, I know, I know many of us feel like that I'm speaking directly to you. You can relate to any part of this story, any part of this sermon. I want to say this. There's another way to live. There is another way to live. That the way it's been doesn't have to be the way it's going to be. That there is hope for transformation but most importantly, freedom. When we started this series, the word that defined it for me was liberation. That we would be a free people, freed from our sexual desires that are outside the boundaries of marriage. Freed from the image of our identity being tied to our image. Freed from our addiction to pornography. Brothers, 50% of us are addicted to pornography, statistically speaking. My hope is that we would experience liberation, that the chains would fall off, and this would be a place of letting the captives go free. So if there is another way, then here's the other way, according to Romans chapter one. If it starts with ingratitude, then the first place it begins for us is gratitude. If we want to experience a life of freedom, how do we experience a life of freedom? Well, it starts with gratitude, giving thanks for all that you have. Worship. The second place is it leads is when we, we become thankful for what we have and we no longer live in discontentment. We become worshipers of the one true God, not the worshipers of self and sexuality. So we begin to worship the one true God. And from, from worshiping the one true God, from being thankful to worship, we move to obedience and we recognize that God is good and he has our best in mind. And that if we can recognize that, then we can walk in obedience. And from obedience, it leads to a life of freedom where th those things no longer define us, where it's defined us in the past. Is there an amen? That there is hope for change. That, that we can live as free people, no longer marked by the sins of our past. Because the point isn't just to clean up our lives. And if you're here and you've never been to Jesus, you don't clean up your life and come to him. He comes and cleans up your life. But for many of us, we are Christians and we are stuck living immoral lives. Are you with me? And so my hope is that we can experience freedom and I can just remind you that there is another way. So brothers and sisters, how do we experience healing and freedom and wholeness? How do we challenge the culture that says experience sex however you like it and recognize that there is a God who has our good in mind and he wants us to live as free people and he's saying hold out not because he's a killjoy, 
but because he's good and he wants our best. Can we recognize and worship this true God and be thankful for what he has? Because if you're here and you say yes to Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He calls you his beloved. He calls you his saint. He calls you holy. You have been power washed. He doesn't see the sin you see. But we see the sin in our marriages. And we see the sin because we see the consequences. So my hope this morning is that we can be set free and we can learn how to live a life of freedom. So here's my my conclusion. Four points. How do we experience freedom? I think it's this. One, open yourselves up to God. For the love of God, brothers and sisters, if you come to church, you believe there's a God, open your lives to him. Stop hiding in shame. Stop saying that this isn't a safe place. It is so safe. Brokenness is the universal language. We have all fallen short. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. If I can stand and preach on the stage, you can stand and worship on on this place and recognize that we're all sinners and we have all fallen short. Open yourselves up to God and be honest with who you are. God, I'm struggling with this. God, I'm hurting here. God, my marriage could be better. God, I have sexual fantasies all day long. Begin by just saying, this is where I am, and he'll meet you there. But it starts with you being open, because the moment you recognize and encounter the one true God, the moment you recognize the one true self. When you come to church on Sunday, we're reminding you of who God is, but also who you are. And we want you to experience the real you, not the one enslaved to the things that have kept you down. Number one is be open. Number two is if there are things in your life that are bubbling up, confess it. Start by confessing it to God. If you don't know how to do this on a regular basis, it says in James, confess your sins that you may be healed. It will bring freedom in your life if you release the things that are hiding in the closets. They only have power when they're in secret. Confess. Third is invite the Holy Spirit. You can't do this on your own strength. You can try. You will fail over and over again. You have to invite the Holy Spirit to come in and transform that very thing that you've confessed. It says, um, in number four, it says in in Ephesians, uh, he talks about this, and then Paul will say something like, for those of you that are stealing, don't steal anymore. Instead, work with your hands so that you can give to the brothers and sisters. And there's something divine about that. We can't just say, okay, God, change me. We become participants in it through disciplines. So if you stole, you're using your hands to take away. Instead, use your hands to work so that you can give away. In other words, he's replacing bad behavior with good behavior. Are you with me? So for those of you that are struggling with pornography, figure it out what leads you to that place. Don't have internet on your phone. There are resources on our website of all these different resources you can download on your computer. You can get accountability with people in your life. Get in, uh, people can get an email when you go to a site that's not good. All sorts of things. Let's challenge ourselves and discipline ourselves. And lastly, there's five points I realize is community. You can't do this alone. Be open, confess, invite the Holy Spirit, practice disciplines, and let's do this together. If you don't have community, you will not find a way, this road to be easy. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.